will be taken from Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, we'll read verses 22 through 33. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood, uh, still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Good job. No wonder nobody laughed. <laughs> I'm reminded of a young boy who got in trouble. A young boy who got in trouble and his mother sent him to his room. And she told him on his way to the room that he needed to pray about his behavior and that he wasn't allowed to come out of the room until he had. And a few moments later, the boy came out of the room and his mother asked, did you pray? And he answered affirmatively. And she said, did you, uh, what did you pray for? And he said, well, I prayed that God would help you put up with me. See, sometimes we pray for things, but, but do, are we praying for the right things? Do we know correctly what to be praying for? Prayer is a subject that is abundant throughout Scripture. Prayer is a, a frequent subject of Scripture but I think when we go to the life of Abraham, this life that we're calling the first follower, this example of faith that is Abraham, 
We see someone who teaches us to pray. And the example of Abraham's communication with God that we're going to read about or study tonight in Genesis chapter 18, it challenges us to be better prayers. But before we dive into what Abraham said to God, let's start by looking at what God said to Abraham. So if you're not there, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 18. And I want you to see what God is communicating to Abraham here. Now, in the context of this passage, these three visitors have have arrived at Abraham's tent. And as we studied a few weeks ago, Abraham finds out that one of them is the Lord because there is divine revelation involved. In fact, that one individual names Sarah before anybody else knows her name. And and also uh, communicates that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child this time next year. And so Abraham has caught on to the fact that, that one of these three individuals is, is God embodied in the form of man. And shortly thereafter, we, we learn that the other two individuals are angels who are sent on their way to Sodom. But the Lord didn't go with the two angels en route to Sodom. He stayed back to speak to Abraham. And as we heard in our scripture reading, the Lord informed Abraham about his investigation into Sodom because of the outcries he's heard against them. And that's where God lets Abraham in on his plan. Now, I want you to think for a moment with me tonight. Why did God inform Abram, Abraham of his plan to destroy Sodom? I think there's two primary reasons. One reason God informed Abraham of his plan to destroy Sodom is because Abraham was his friend. This little detail that Abraham was a friend of God is mentioned three times in Scripture. You can see it most prominently in James chapter 2 and verse 23, but it's alluded to also in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 7, as well as Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8. That little detail is so significant. Abraham is identified as God's friend. You know what one of the key marks of good friendship is? One of the key marks of a good friendship is intimate knowledge communication, inclusion, the idea that if you have a good, close friend, you're going to inform them about what's going on in your life. You're going to communicate to them what's happening. They're going to be included in the events of your life. There is a level of intimacy involved in that that's not involved in every relationship you have. A good, close, intimate friend is going to know what's going on. That's a mark of good friendship. And here's God speaking to his friend. And it's as if God decides that Abraham needs to be included in the events that are about to transpire. transpire. He needs to be updated and informed. So in Genesis chapter 18, we have God who says in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him. And so God says, in essence, I did that, sorry. So God says, in essence, Abraham is my friend, and I've chosen him out of all the people in the world, all the nations. And I've declared that he's going to be the one through whom other nations are blessed. But now, I intend to remove a couple of those nations that could be blessed by him. 
So I ought to tell him why. God doesn't approach Abraham because he needs Abraham's approval. God doesn't inform Abraham because he wants Abraham's input. God's not communicating this to Abraham because he owed it to Abraham. God's sharing his plan with Abraham simply because Abraham was his friend. And he wanted to include Abraham in what he was doing. And here's the beautiful thing. Abraham, the father of faith, sets a standard for our relationship with God. Because just like he's including Abraham here, God includes us in his plan. His eternal plan, as the book of Ephesians would call it. This plan that he's had in place from the beginning to save mankind. And he's included us in it, and he's told us about it, and he told us how it's going to work, and the means by which we can become a part of his people. And he's even filled us in on the end game. He's even filled us in on how all of this is going to play out and who's going to be victorious and how we can ensure that we're numbered among the victorious. God has not left out anything that we need to know in order to spend eternity with Him. That's a wonderful, beautiful, exemplary friend who's willing to give us the good news so that we can be included. Just as God informed Abraham what he was doing in Sodom, he has informed us what he's doing in eternity because we are his friends. But that's not the only reason that God informed Abraham about Sodom. God also informed Abraham uh, what he was going to do in Sodom because Abraham was his herald. Now, a herald is somebody who communicates a message on behalf of another. And oftentimes, a herald has the unfortunate task of communicating warnings. Think about the prophetic work of Jonah in that vein. Jonah is sent to Nineveh to warn them that destruction is pending. That was his task. His sermon was essentially a few words, repent because judgment's coming. I know some of you wish I'd preached that short as well. But Jonah had this task to warn people of an impending danger. I want you to notice something that's said in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19 about God's purpose in telling Abraham. It's there in verse 19, after, after declaring that uh, Abraham is chosen, that Abraham is the one through whom nations would be blessed, God says this, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So God wanted to share this information with someone who would pass on to future generations what he was about to do, what he accomplishes through this. One thing I have found interesting in this study uh, of God's declaration to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah is that throughout the Bible, there's something like 22 more times, that the, 22 times after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that references made back to it. It's a very popular event in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. And God here is saying, I want people to remember this. I want you to pass this on to future generations. I want you to tell your kids what I did here, and I want them to tell their kids what I did here, and I want them to tell their kids what I did here, because I want people to understand that I do not tolerate evil. I do not tolerate wickedness. 
I do not tolerate sin. I will judge it, and I will destroy it. I like the way one preacher said it. He said, God wanted the destruction of Sodom to be a warning to all men of the ultimate judgment on all sin. And so you can come to a book like uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, where Peter makes mention of the fact that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. In other words, God is saying, hey, Abraham, I want you to communicate this to your children, to your grandchildren, and so on, so that people understand that I judge sin, that I do not tolerate and allow this permanently. He wants Abraham to be his initial herald of a message of judgment. And just as Abraham was God's friend who God wanted to share the good news with, he is God's messenger of a warning to let people know that a judgment does come. And we're like Abraham in that friend category of God, but we're also like Abraham in that herald category. Because not only do we have the good news to share, that we can be included in God's kingdom, but we have a warning to share as well, that a day of judgment is coming. And it's not just a judgment on a couple of cities, it's a judgment on the entire world, and no one escapes this judgment. And we have the responsibility to share that message, just as Abraham had the responsibility to pass it on to his children. That God doesn't tolerate sin forever. That God will judge and eradicate sin and evil and wickedness and unrighteousness one day. We have that assignment just as Abraham did. So God's informing Abraham for two reasons. One, because he's his friend and he wants to share with him this, this information so that he's included. And God's telling Abraham because he wants Abraham to share a warning, this message that destruction came about as a result of sin. That's God's communication to Abraham here. Now I want us to consider Abraham's communication to God. Because ultimately, our relationship with God is a two-way street of communication, isn't it? And I want you to think about what we can learn about prayer from Abraham. Because as we picked up the, pick up the story, you can see in verse 22... That, I mean, verse 23, Abraham drew near and started speaking to God. And there's three things I want you to observe as we go through this account about Abraham's communication with God. Because it teaches us that prayer is meant to be bold. Prayer is meant to be bold. How did Abraham respond to God's revealed plan here? In verse 23, he drew near to God and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So after hearing God's plan, Abraham boldly approached God with a request to adjust his plan. And look at how many times Abraham will consult God here. He initially approaches him in verse 23, and he pitches this idea of, Hey, if there's 50 righteous people there, will you spare the city? And God agrees to it. That's his first approach. And after God responded to this initial request, Abraham returned a second time. 
Verse 27 and 28, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And after God agreed to these updated terms, Abram returned for a third time in verse, 30, in verse 29. And now he says, suppose there are just 40 there. Just 40. God agrees again. For the fourth time. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He's not dropping by fives anymore. He's dropping by ten. Suppose just 30. Don't be angry at me. Just If there's 30, will you spare the city? But he's not done. He approaches him a fifth time in verse 31, saying, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And then he approaches for the sixth time. In verse 32, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. Throughout this whole interaction, Abraham was bold, not in a disrespectful way, but in a confident way. His boldness stemmed from the intimate relationship he possessed with God as one that God identified as a friend. And so he felt comfortable approaching God with requests. He wasn't afraid to go before God. He did it respectfully. He approached God humbly, but he also approached God confidently. And do you notice that throughout this whole exchange, God never gets upset at Abraham for approaching him. He doesn't grow impatient with Abraham's requests. He doesn't chastise Abraham for his brazenness. He didn't get angry at Abraham's negotiation process. He, he graciously allowed Abraham to communicate with him. All these different times. He allowed Abraham to weigh in, to share his thoughts, his concerns, his requests. What God did not allow is for Abraham's will to usurp his own. But he allowed Abraham to approach him. And the lesson for us to take away from Abraham's example is that we can boldly approach God as well. There's this passage in John chapter 15 where Jesus in his last hours with the disciples is providing some one-on-one teaching with them. And he says this in John chapter 15 verse 13. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. If you catch the whole content of what Jesus is saying, he's saying, you're my friends. I've chosen you, and you're my friends as long as you do what I command you to do. And because you're my friends, I've filled you in. I've informed you about what's going on. And because you're my friends, you have this objective to go and bear fruit. And and because you're my friends, you can approach the Father with your requests. You can be bold and confident to approach his throne. In fact, Scripture speaks of that frequently. You can go to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul said that in Christ, 
we have boldness and confident access to God. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, we're instructed to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that same passage indicates we can do that because we have a sympathizing high priest. See, because we are friends of the Son, we can approach the Father with boldness. Think about it. In John chapter 2, Jesus' own mother approached him with requests to solve a practical dilemma at a wedding that had to do with beverages. If Jesus doesn't help her, worst case scenario is that a couple of people are really embarrassed. It's not a big request. It's a very small request, but it's a very bold request from Jesus' mother. Because his initial response is, my time has not yet come. But did Jesus fulfill her request? Two chapters later, you're in John chapter 4, and an official of some sort approaches Jesus and asks for him to heal his son who has died. He's asking Jesus to bring his child back to life. That's a big request. Worst case scenario, if Jesus doesn't fulfill this request, this father suffers with grief for the rest of his life. Big request. Does Jesus fulfill it? Yes. And here's my point. It doesn't matter how small your request is or how big your request is, you can approach God with any request. Philippians chapter 4, let all your requests be made known. Because we have a Father who so deeply cares about us that it doesn't matter if it's a small thing or a big thing, He's willing to hear from us. And we can have confidence and we can have a boldness to approach His throne because we are His friends. And so when we look at Abraham's communication with God, the first thing it should do when it impacts the way we pray is it should give us the understanding that we can pray with boldness, unafraid to approach God with any situation or any matter or any circumstances because he is our friend. But we also learn from Abraham that prayer is meant to be intercessory. When we talk about intercession, we, we're talking about speaking on behalf of another, coming to another's aid. And here's the thing. When Abraham approaches God with these series of requests, this negotiation process, he's standing up for Sodom. Now we're told back in Genesis chapter 13 that Sodom had a reputation, that everyone knew Sodom was wicked and evil and unrighteous, and you just don't go to Sodom. Abraham could have easily, when God was standing there with him, looking down over the, the, the valley while the, the, the two angels make their way to Sodom, Abraham could have said, hey, I can save you some trouble. You ain't got to send anybody down there because I've heard the same thing. Sodom's horrible. Besides that, I've got a relative there. You don't have to go down there to find out that it's bad. You might as well just destroy that city. 
you know, and give me that land because that's the fertile land over there. Abraham could have taken a very selfish approach to the situation, but Abraham didn't. You remember the first thing Abraham said after God revealed his plan? It's in verse 23 of Genesis 18. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham is clearly thinking of his nephew Lot. He's considering the fact that he's got family in Sodom that he's concerned about. And here's the thing. Lot is the only one who's going to be identified out of those inhabitants of Sodom as being righteous. He's called that in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. He's referred to as righteous in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. But Abraham is interceding for the entire town. And he's doing it because he knows nobody else would intercede for Sodom. Nobody else is going to care about Sodom. Everybody else is going to be okay with God destroying Sodom. But Abraham, Abraham's going to go to bat for Sodom. And so Abraham starts by asking God to spare Sodom for 50 people. But Abraham knows the reputation of Sodom. And so he keeps negotiating that number down till he can get it close enough that maybe the people he does know there are enough to save the entire town. See, he knows Lot's there, and Lot's got a wife, and Lot's got two daughters, so he's already up to four. He's got four right there that, that, that might be counted worthy enough to spare the city. He also may know that Lot's got a, a, his daughters are engaged to a couple of guys. So there, there's a couple of future sons-in-law in the picture. And maybe they can be counted. Maybe they're good enough too, and he can get the number up to six. And maybe he's thinking, all right, all I need is for Lot to have a couple of buddies in town that he's, he's worked on, that he's rubbed off on, and, and we can get to ten, and we can save this town. He's obviously trying to get that number low enough to spare the entire town with the information that he possesses. But the problem is, he could get that number as low as five, and it wouldn't have worked. Because only three people walked away from that city that day. Abraham is interceding for the worst of the worst people. And I believe that God was pleased with Abraham's intercession. I believe God was pleased with Abraham's intercession because it reflected his very own heart. God's very own heart. In Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 1, we're told that the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And as a result, you can go down in Isaiah 59 to verse 16, and as a result of our iniquity separating us from God, making, making his face to hide from us and his ears to not listen to us, we're told that no man can intercede for us. No one can stand between us and God. No man can stand between, no one can intercede on behalf of us to God. Because we are all guilty of such iniquity. But God, in His love for mankind, sent His Son to die for us, to become a mediator for us. And His Son promised to send a helper. A helper who Romans chapter 8 refers to as an intercessor for us. We're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27 that, that the Spirit helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God loves us so much that he interceded for us. That he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I think as he looks at Abraham interceding on the behalf of people that can't do it for themselves, he's pleased. God loves us so much that he intercedes for us, and God, so God expects for us to love others to that same degree. Not that we're going to change God's judgment on those individuals. But that in our intercession, we're pursuing their salvation just as much as we are our own. Think about 2 Peter chapter 3, where God says that, that he's not slow to fulfill his promises. He's just waiting because there's still souls he wants to save. He wants us to have that same passion and desire for lost souls that he has. That's where intercession comes into play. Our intercession isn't just in prayer and words, but in action and in pursuit of the lost. God wants us to have that same desire for lost souls that he has. And Abraham had that here. And Abraham communicated that here. But not only does God expect us to love others this, to the same degree that he loves others, more importantly, God expects us to love him to the same degree that he loved us. And that's the other thing that Abraham demonstrated here. Because you see, Abraham is not just interceding for the city of Sodom. He's also interceding for God. What I mean is that Abraham's got, got God's interests in mind as well. And that's because prayer is meant to be theocentric, to be centered on God's will. Look at what Abraham said after he began his negotiation process in verse 25. He said, far be it from you, speaking to God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. You shall not judge of all the earth to do what is just. I mean, sorry, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham's not scolding God. Abraham's just communicating who God is. You see, Abraham saw only two options here. God was, in his mind, either going to destroy everybody or save everybody. He didn't see the third option. And Abraham determined that it's, it's more just for God to spare a whole bunch of wicked people than to destroy a few righteous people. In other words, Abraham is concerned about the reputation of God. He's concerned that if the other nations around them hear that, that, that God, the God he serves, is so vindictive that he'll wipe out everybody, no matter who's righteous and wicked, that it will hurt his reputation among the nations. It's the same concern that Moses had in Exodus chapter 32, when there on, the, on Mount Sinai, when God points out the sin of the Israelites below who, who are engaging in the worship of this golden calf and, and these debaucherous activities, and God, in his fury and his wrath and his anger towards their sin declares in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 9 and 10 that he was going to burn against them. He was going to consume them. He was going to destroy the Israelites and start a new nation with Moses. And Moses responded 
to God that day. By saying this, what would the Egyptians say? They would say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. And then Moses said, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Moses and Abraham are doing the exact same thing. God, if you do that, what are the people, what is the world going to think about you? And it's not so much that they're getting on to God as it is they're communicating back to God his very nature, his very character. They're not even reminding God. The truth is, they're not changing the will of God at all. God's will is set. What he purposes to do, we cannot change. But based on our petitions to him, he may alter the route, the course, the means by which he accomplishes that will. But his will is still going to be carried out. And Abraham, in his communication to God, notice that he's not pleading the merits of Sodom. He's not talking about the good things associated with Sodom and saying, hey, you should spare Sodom because of what they did here or what they did here. He's not talking about Sodom. When he speaks to God, he appeals to God's character. Because he knows that God is just. And he knows that God is good. And he knows that God is merciful. And he knows that God is eager to save. He knows those things because throughout his time on this earth at that point, God had been that to him. He had experienced God's grace in his own life when he failed by his trip to Egypt, when he failed by his involvement of Hagar. He had experienced the goodness and the mercy of God time and time again. So he intercedes here based on what he knows about the unchanging character and nature of God. So Abraham is essentially asking God to do what's consistent with who God is. And that's the heart of prayer. That's what prayer is really about. Prayer isn't asking God to contradict his nature and do something he doesn't want to do. Prayer is asking God for a blessing on yourself or somebody else while stressing the glory it will bring to him. Our prayers, as I said, don't form the will of God, but rather the will of God needs to form our prayers. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here's the most amazing thing. Our sovereign God makes the sovereign choice to alter the means by which he accomplishes his will in accordance with our prayers. As I said, we don't change the will of God. We don't change the purpose that he has set in place. But God makes the sovereign choice to alter the means by which he's going to accomplish his will based on what he hears from us. That's why 
Our prayers must be theocentric. That's why our prayers must be centered on His will. And look how He did this in this situation. Go over to chapter 19 and verse 29 of Genesis. Because after Sodom is destroyed, and after Lot flees with his family, we're told this in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow, overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. It's fascinating to me that when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he doesn't say that he spared, that he remembered Lot. Even though Lot is called righteous in the New Testament, he didn't spare Lot because of Lot. He spared Lot because his friend prayed for Lot. See, we may not always know how to pray. We may not always know the right words to pray. But here's what we do know. We can pray with boldness, with confidence as we approach the throne of our Father. And we know that we can pray for others. That we can intercede in prayer on behalf of those who are hurting, those who are struggling, those who need our help. And here's what we know. We can always pray for God's will to be done. And when we do, it changes our will to align with His. See, tonight we talk about prayer, and it might just be that that is the one thing you need the most tonight. Maybe you need a whole lot of intercession. Maybe things are going on in your life that, that are just getting too difficult to handle, and you need some people to be praying for you, to be interceding for you as Abraham for Lot and for Sodom. Now is an opportunity to seek out that kind of prayer. Maybe tonight you look at your life and as a follower you realize that you're not following all that well. You realize that your life is not centered around the will of God and you need to correct that and you need to restructure the direction of your life so that it's inconsistent, it's consistent with the will of God of God. Maybe tonight you realize you're more like Sodom than you are Abraham. And you're conformed to the world and, and you're living a life of sin that, that needs to be repented of before there is a day on, in, on which judgment comes. Maybe you need to seek out the forgiveness that can only be found through the blood of Jesus Christ tonight. You can do that by confessing your faith that He is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. See, tonight we're here because just like Abraham interceded for Sodom out of concern for the souls that were in Sodom, we're here because we're concerned about souls too. And if your soul is troubled tonight for whatever reason, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.